There we go. <clears throat> now I'm unmuted. All right. Good morning, everyone, and welcome. This is Just Human number 225. We're going to be going over filings in Trump's DC case. I did not plan on doing a show this morning, so I didn't put anything out last night. So sorry if you're catching this on replay and you're you missed the live. Um <clears throat> I kind of I just decided I would do it this morning. I I had my I, my plan for today was for me to sleep in and then do stuff with the dogs and stuff around the house and then maybe this afternoon or this evening do a show catching up on filings. But the key thing there was my plan was to sleep in this morning. And uh that didn't happen. Uh the boys decided to argue with each other over cinnamon rolls and wake me up and then there was some crises here with one of them and then another one was arguing and like just I gave up on sleeping in. Uh <laughs> I just I just said screw it. It ain't going to happen and uh made myself coffee and took a shower and decided I would do a show. So here we are going to uh go through filings in uh the DC case. There's a lot um there's a lot we're behind. We're way behind on the DC case and there's some significant ones that I don't want to skip over. And so I'm I'm aware that we're we're a whole month behind in filings there, but I think it's worth tracking it, tracking this case point by point, you know, happening by happening with it. And so I want to go back a month and uh, we'll look at some important filings. There are a few filings I can skip. Um, and I don't think we'll catch up completely today. Um, but whatever. We'll get as far as we can. Hopefully my lack of sleep doesn't cause me a headache. Because uh, sometimes that happens. Um, but I think I'll be okay. So good morning to all of you. Glad you're here. It was very much boys. Yeah, it was boys being boys. That's uh, Road Dog. Yeah. Yeah. Typical boys. And then mixed in, you had the puppies whining because uh, they wanted a cinnamon roll too, of course. I wanted a cinnamon roll, but trying to be good. Trying to be good. One pup gained back 10 pounds. Hercules did, and that's great, but unfortunately, it's like I'm trying to gain back 10 pounds. I don't want to gain back 10 pounds. I'm trying to lose another 10 pounds. Um, so I'm going to be good and try not to eat any cinnamon rolls. Wish me luck with that. All right, folks, if you enjoy the show today, please hit the thumbs up. Please share it. If you're looking to support the show beyond that, either in the show description like on uh, Rumble, or in my link tree, you can find links to support the show. They're all right here under support links. And um, the first one is coffee or Ko-Fi. Buy me a coffee. I run on caffeine. Caffeine is what I need. Obviously, I need caffeine this morning after doing defected last night and going to sleep late. Um Coffee is very important for me. So that's a great way to support the show. By the way, uh, Ko-Fi takes like no money out of coffee donations, um, which is kind of crazy. I, I did think at first that they took like a small percentage. They don't. Um, so every 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 cent makes its way all the way to me 
I think minus a small transaction fee from like Stripe or something. Another great way is if, if you click the click the link into the show description box, or if you click it here on my link tree, it takes you to Benson Honey Farms and that's an affiliate link. So once you click there to get to the site, whatever you purchase, a couple dollars from your transaction gets kicked back to me. Um, so really appreciate that. Lo um, I love everything that the Bensons have on their side, as I've said before, I've used all their products and, um, I think they're delicious. So absolutely delicious. So if they have, do they have, okay, that's sold out. The half gallon sold out. This is new. So I guess I haven't had everything. This I have not had glass quart of clover honey. Ooh. Okay. I may need to make a purchase for myself after the show. Benson honey farms, great people, great friends of the show. And yeah, a great way to support the show. Also, bootleg products. He sent me some chili, and I haven't had it yet, uh, but I'm planning on trying it um, this week probably. And because uh, you know, like it's that Thanksgiving week where you're going to invest all your effort into making a meal for <clears throat> and making items for the feast on Thursday. So, going to do quick and easy stuff in the days leading up to it. So, and it's about the, it's been cooler here. Um, I'm in the mood for chili, but I love their salsas and I love their seasonings. I use those all the time. Um, I use their seasonings almost every day. Uh, I love all the products here and, uh, Mike is great. So same thing as with, uh, Benson Honey Farms, you click the link either on my, um, link tree or on the show description. If you make a purchase there, they kick a couple dollars my way. There's also buy me a coffee with Venmo. Really appreciate people using that. And then the merch store. If you go to the merch, merch store over here, red, white, bourbon, 45 influencer collection, which I mean, I don't think of myself as an influencer, but uh, I understand the reference. That's where you can get the merch, the coffee mug. All the stuff is great, but the coffee mug is far and away the best thing. Obviously, obviously, because you can put coffee in it. Runner up, I would say, though, is the pint glass because, you know, you can put craft beer in it. So if you're interested in making a purchase, a few dollars gets kicked my way and supports the show. And that's what makes the show possible. Now, let's get to the good stuff. Let's get to the good stuff. So we're going to have to go back actually over a month. Um, and, and looking at this docket and where I want to be with it, um, I'm going to skip some things. I want to read Trump actually filed three motions to dismiss. It's a motion to dismiss based on, um, let's see, where's the first one? Where's the first one? He's got the appeal. Um, There's that one. Where's the other one to dismiss? There's the motion for discovery. Hold up. Because this right here... 74. Okay. So 
Trump filed this motion to dismiss uh, back on October 5th. And I believe we read it on the show. I could be wrong. No, we didn't read it on the show. That's the one that was 52 pages long. All right, so check this out. Trump and team, they filed that motion to dismiss way back then, that 52-page motion, back on October 5th, right? But then his team came in and filed more motions to dismiss, like this one here, motion to dismiss based on constitutional grounds on October 23rd, and then the next, and then the same day, another motion to dismiss based on statutory grounds. And then they filed in that same day motion to strike inflammatory allegations from the indictment. And then they filed a motion to dismiss same day on uh, for motion to dismiss for selective and vindictive prosecution. So they have multiple motions to dismiss based on different grounds. And I'm, I'm trying to decide how much I want to go into those. Cause I do think it's interesting. Um, but before we get, I haven't made up my mind. Um, I haven't made up my mind which ones we're going to read. Uh, I'm kind of thinking about just reading all of them and this will just be a multi multi show effort to get through them all. I don't know. But one thing what I have decided that I am going to do, I mean, if we're making it up as we go along, right? That's what we do on this show. Um, Right here on October 11th, this motion for discovery. I want to do this first because I mentioned um, it was in September, the battle back and forth and uh, getting clearances for all of Trump's attorneys. And uh, th there were various battles happening in this court. And Chutkin came down with a ruling that wasn't, I don't remember the specifics of it, but it wasn't exactly in favor of Trump, but it wasn't wholly against him. He didn't completely lose. But the main thing I focused on was now that this has happened, um, discovery can begin. So that means Trump team is going to be able to start crafting arguments against uh, Jack Smith's case. And then here we go. Here's Trump's motion for discovery. So I want to start here. Let's see, where's the... It's actually this one right here. Yeah. Yeah. I'll move that tab around. Yeah. Docket entry 99. So this is where we're going to start. Good morning, Mad Beach Bimbo. Good morning, everyone. Glad y'all are here. Let's go right here. This is document 99. This was filed back on October 11th. Only 12 pages, but this is for discovery. And I find it interesting because of who Trump is going to, um, what entities he's going to. You'll see. You'll see. So check this out. Um, pursuant to federal rule, criminal, blah, 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 blah. Trump respectfully requests leave to issue the attached subpoenas, the requested subpoenas for pre-trial production of records. Addressed to the following. One, the archivist of the United States at the National Archives and Record Administration. That would be the lady who's retiring. Deborah Wall or Stahl, I think it's Wall, whose retirement was just announced. Two, the clerk of the House of Representatives. Um, her name escapes me right now, but I think it starts with an E. I think her name's Elizabeth something. The current committee on House Administration. 
which is the successor entity to the January 6th Select Committee. Richard Sauber, the special counsel to the president. Jonathan Meyer, the general counsel of the Department of Homeland Security. Representative Barry Loudermilk of the U.S. House of Representatives. And Representative Benny Thompson of the U.S. House of Representatives. The House Committee on Administration has identified these records as missing from the archived records of the January 6th Select Committee. By these subpoenas, President Trump seeks to retrieve certain missing records and uncover information about their disposition. Trump is charged with conspiracy to defraud the United States in violation of 18 U.S.C. 371, obstruction of an official proceeding, obstruction and attempt to obstruct, conspiracy against rights. These false allegations carry a focus on the certification of the 2020 presidential election and encompass the period between the election held on November 3rd, 2020, and January 6th, 2021. As the court is aware, a House of Representatives committee previously investigated the events of January 6th, 2021 um, under House Resolution 503, 117th Congress. That would be the January Select Committee, January 6th Select Committee. The Select Committee compiled a large archive of information. We got a footnote. Footnote, the Select Committee purportedly accumulated four terabytes of data during the investigation, but Rep. Loudermilk reported that his successor committee received only 2.5 terabytes. And then it gives a reference to a report on that. Upon the dissolution of the select committee at the conclusion of the 117th Congress, applicable House rules required the select committee to transfer its records to the Committee on House Administration for preservation and archiving. According to a letter from Representative Barry Loudermilk, chair of the Subcommittee on Oversight, however, the Select Committee did not transfer or archive numerous records. Collectively, we are referring to these as the missing records. For example, quote, the video recordings of transcribed interviews and depositions, which featured prominently during the Select Committee's hearings, were not archived or transferred to the Committee on House Administration. In response to Mr. Loudermilk's letter, the former chair of the Select Committee, Benny Thompson confirmed that despite their plain relevance, these and other records, which Thompson cryptically described as, quote, temporary committee records, were not archived. And then they have a footnote citing Rule, rule 7 of the Rules of the U.S. House of Representatives governs official House records requiring committees and officers to transfer to the clerk any non-current records of committees and subcommittees and to those created or acquired by House officers and their staffs in the course of their official duties. Likewise, at the very end of its existence, the select committee, quote, loaned other crucial records to, quote, the White House Special Counsel and Department of Homeland Security. A letter from Benny Thompson dated July 7th. Okay. Ah, oh, my birthday. All right. From the descriptions in the letters, these materials include important intelligence and other law enforcement information records identifying witnesses, and other information the Select Committee deemed sensitive pursuant to the agreements with the White House and DHS. In truth, this was no loan, and the Select Committee's failure to archive the materials was intentional. Representative Thompson provided the materials to the White House and DHS on Friday, December 30th, 2022, knowing full well the Select Committee would dissolve the very next business day. And it's got a footnote citing that record. As planned... 
The Biden administration did not return these documents prior to the dissolution of the select committee. And as a result, the select committee did not properly archive that material with the rest of its records. Needless to say, there is significant overlap between the select committee's investigation and this case, and there is a strong likelihood that individuals discussed in the missing records could be called as trial witnesses. Indeed, the letters from the select committee transferring these records to the White House and DHS indicate how important the select committee considered these witnesses and records. And it has some exhibits cited here uh, referencing uh, Richard Sauber and also Jonathan Meyer. President Trump is fully entitled to seek the missing records by subpoena. It is also equally important to determine if these records have been lost, destroyed, or altered. The requested subpoenas are narrowly tailored to achieve these legitimate ends, which are fundamental to ensuring President Trump's right to a fair trial under the Fifth and Sixth Amendments. As the missing records are currently unavailable, the requested subpoenas would not be duplicative of any other records either publicly available or produced in discovery. Accordingly, President Trump requests leave to serve the requested subpoenas, which include the narrowly tailored document request listed below. Footnote. Although the discovery in this case is vast and the defense has not reviewed it in its entirety, the defense has a good faith belief that the government's Rule 16 discovery productions do not include the requested records. Okay, so um, they're saying, hey, this stuff may be included, but we don't think it is, and that's why we're doing this with these subpoenas. As these records may be maintained by more than one party, President Trump seeks leave to send a substantially similar subpoena to the seven likely custodians of the requested records. One, the archivist of, the, of NARA. Two, the clerk of the House. Three, the current Committee on House Administration, which is the successor to the January 6th Select Committee. Rep. Loudermilk and Rep. Benny Thompson. As well as Special Counsel to the White House and the General Counsel to DHS. The requested records include, one, the select committee missing materials. And we have a footnote. The requested subpoenas define select committee missing materials as limited manner to incumbents. Okay. <clears throat> the records and communications regarding methods, practices, instructions, litigation holds, and policies regarding transfer, retention, archiving, or destruction of the select committee missing rec materials. Records and communications regarding the loss or destruction of select committee missing materials. Uh, number four, communications with the DOJ or other law enforcement agencies related to select committee missing materials. I wonder if the Secret Service text are what they have in mind there. Five, records and communications relating to any accommodations or agreements with the executive branch, including DOJ, DHS, the White House, regarding the select committee missing materials, any other documents, communications, or records in any way pertaining to the missing materials. Then they cite the applicable law for doing such requests. We can skip that. Um, the requested subpoenas are proper. Da da da. Okay, okay. I'm skipping some of this because it's, I mean, we just don't really need to get into it. Um, it's citing the law and making the argument for why this is legit and 
I mean, it is. All right, so Jack Smith responded to that, and I want to uh, I want to hit on it. It's up here somewhere. Forgive me while I scroll looking for it. Response to Trump 97 motion for order. What's there? Response. There. There's the motions to dismiss. There it is. Memorandum in opposition by USA to Trump's 99 motion for discovery. Okay. This is what Jack Smith had to say in response. I haven't read this, uh, but I want, I want to see what Jack Smith has to say about these missing materials. The defendant asked for the court's permission to make vague early return document demands of four non-party legislative branch entities and three non-party executive branch entities, all in search of information regarding purportedly, quote, missing records from the House Select Committee to investigate the January 6th attack on the United States Capitol. The defendant's motion is wholly unnecessary. The government already provided the defendant in discovery the select committee records that he identifies with any specificity. In any event, the defendant's proposed fishing expedition in search of other purportedly missing congressional records fails to satisfy the requirement that Rule 17C uh, subpoenas to be for Rule 17E subpoenas uh, be for relevant, admissible, and specific information. Oh, I'm, I'm reading it wrong fails to satisfy the requirement that Rule 17C subpoenas be for relevant, admissible, and specific information. Okay, and gives background. We just read that stuff. Although the defendant's motion and proposed subpoena suggest this material could be voluminous, including, quote, the video recordings or other transcriptions of witness interviews, intelligence, and other law enforcement information available to the Secret Service, records identifying witnesses and other information the select committee deemed private or operational details pursuant to agreements with the White House and DHS. A review of the underlying correspondence of the defendant's sites reveals that the actual records provided to the White House and Secret Service are a small number of transcripts of select committee interviews conducted subject to confidentiality agreements. Footnote. Insights a letter from Thompson and Sauber stating that the material being returned to the White House for archiving consisted of committee interview transcripts. The remaining topics in the defendant's subpoenas relate to records and communications concerning the loss of destruction or destruction of any missing select committee materials. In a footnote, the defendant admits that he, quote, has not reviewed discovery in its entirety, but nonetheless claims, quote, a good faith belief that the discovery does not include the requested records. As the government has set forth in court, in pleadings, and in its discovery letters to the defendant, during the course of its investigation, the government obtained and produced records from the Select Committee's investigation and from the Secret Service. As early as the August 11, 2023 hearing on the protective order motion, the government advised the court and the defendant that it obtained non-public items from the Select Committee, including transcripts of witness interviews. The government also described, quote, a large volume of material obtained from the Secret Service. That same day, the government made its first production of unclassified discovery, which included the sensitive, non-public transcripts that the defendant now claims are missing. In the cover letter accompanying that production, the government informed the defendant that the production included materials from the select committee, quote, including inter alia transcripts of, of interviews 
and depositions and accompanying exhibits provided by the House Select Committee. And that this production also includes transcripts of testimony provided by the House Select Committee and related exhibits that the government obtained from the United States Secret Service and the White House. A detailed source log appended to the cover letter identified each of the witnesses for whom transcripts have been produced, sorted in alphabetical order by last name, along with the Bates range identifying the location of each witness transcript in the production. Prior to filing the present motion, the defendant did not seek additional information or clarification regarding the government's production of these materials, nor did he ask whether the production included the sensitive non-public select committee interview transcripts that he now seeks, which it did. Had he done so, the government would have directed him to the relevant discovery productions that obviate the need for his proposed subpoenas. So Jack Smith is saying, Hey, uh, Judge Trump team wants to do these subpoena things, but he's trying to subpoena subpoena these entities for records he already has and that we've already produced. As an initial matter, the defendant already has the purportedly quote missing material discussed in the letters to the White House and DHS. They are sensitive, non-public select committee interview transcripts. To the extent that his request reaches beyond these specific records that he already has been provided, the defendant's motion should be denied because he fails to meet Nixon's, quote, exacting standards. Interesting. Okay, here's a footnote here. The defendant spends a substantial portion of his legal analysis discussing the ramifications of lost evidence or the government's failure to preserve evidence, yet none of the cases that the defendant cites in this portion of his brief even mention Rule 17C, in any event, there can be no recourse against the government when dealing with records of non-parties not in the possession of the prosecution team. Oh, it cites United States versus Bannon. June 22nd, saying the government is not responsible for turning over records not in its possession. And, uh, moving papers. It is doubtful that defendants moving papers even raised a due process issue. I'm scrolling to burn through this to see if there's anything else I want to read from it. Second, the defendant claims that, quote, impeachment of witnesses is clearly material to the defense, but he fails to identify for whom he seeks to obtain impeachment evidence and whether that person will be a witness at trial. Well, he's not going to tell you that yet. He's not going to tell you freely what witnesses he wants to bring at trial just yet, Mr. Jack Smith. Since the party's witness list are not due to be exchanged until February 19th, 2024, a request seeking impeachment evidence, even if it identified a specific witness, is at best premature. Mm -hmm. The defense motion fails in any way to discuss, much less establish, the relevancy of any of the requested records. The defendant, this is a footnote, the defendant cannot attempt to rehabilitate in his reply brief arguments waived by failure to be included in his motion. That's true. Okay, okay. So Smith says he already got, he, Trump already has what he is asking for. 
So his motion should be denied. Let me see if Chutkin has ruled on this. Trump came back and made this filing on November 1st in support. We're going to read that. No, she hasn't. She, that's the last thing. November 1st is the last time this motion for discovery has been mentioned, it looks like. Okay, let's see what Trump said against Jack Smith. I hope this is the Monday morning nerding out that y'all were looking for. All right. President Trump moved pursuant to Federal Criminal Procedure 17C for leave to issue pretrial subpoenas to those various entities, apparently concerned that these missing records would be helpful to the defense or detrimental to entities acting in concert with the Biden administration. The prosecution goes to great lengths to resist production, variously claiming incorrectly that the requested records are not sufficiently relevant, specific, or admissible. Additionally, despite claiming the requests are not sufficiently described, the prosecution strangely and falsely claims that President Trump already possesses the material he seeks. <laughs> oh, that's fun. Okay, I'm going to read that again just because that was a really fun sentence if you like this argumentation. Like, that was just fun. I like the tone of it. Apparently concerned that these missing records would be helpful to the defense or detrimental to entities acting in concert with the Biden administration, the prosecution goes to great lengths to resist production, variously claiming, incorrectly, that the requested records are not sufficiently relevant, specific, or admissible. Additionally, despite claiming that requests are not sufficiently described, the prosecution strangely and falsely claims that President Trump already possesses the material he seeks. These objections are meritless, addressing each in turn. Here we go. <laughs> the requested records are specific, relevant, and admissible. All right. The requested records are, specific, are sufficiently specific. Quote, a subpoena that fails to describe any specific document is too broad, but it is not necessary that the subpoena designate each particular paper desired. It is sufficient if kinds of documents are designated with reasonable particularity. And they give a citation for that. Next, President Trump, or what's the footnote here? Footnote, the prosecution claims it has already produced some of these materials, but carefully declines to say whether it has produced all of them. To the extent it has, President Trump invites the prosecution to identify the records with particularity and verify that it has produced all materials the committee, quote, loaned to any government entity. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> I I love this. I love this back and forth that they get into cuz Jack Smith crafts his language and his filings in one way. I mean, this is what all lawyer filings do, but the way Jack Smith does it and then the way Trump's attorneys come and pick it apart is particularly entertaining. And then I also like it when Trump's attorneys, like they go outlandish and they just exaggerate things uh, to the judge. And then Jack Smith comes back and it's like a voice of reason in a way and like chops that down a bit, but still often fails to actually undo Trump's attorney's arguments. It's just that he chops down the um, 
all the exaggeration and the extra stuff that comes with Trump's filings. Um, but here, this is this is pr- particularly good. Next, President Trump seeks records concerning the disposition of the loaned and now missing committee records. Undoubtedly, the committee would not have given control of records to other government parties without discussing the material the matter internally first. Likewise, the committee almost certainly communicated with the agencies that took possession of the missing records. The requested subpoenas narrowly request these communications, which are oriented on the specific and highly relevant issue of understanding how and why the committee attempted to conceal certain materials. Finally, the letters state that all or most witnesses or most witness interviews were recorded. Quote, the video recordings of transcribed interviews and depositions, which feature prominently during the committee's hearings, were not archived or transferred to the Committee on House Administration. And that's a quote from their their own communications. President Trump seeks these recordings. It is hard to imagine a more specific request than that. In fact, it should be trivially easy for the proposed respondents to locate and produce recordings the committee created of witness interviews in the ordinary course of business, presuming, of course, the committee did not delete the recording specifically to ensure President Trump and other political parties could not obtain them, which appears likely. Personally, I wouldn't have gone that far to say that because that may rub the judge the wrong way, but it is what everybody's thinking. And it's understandable why we're all thinking it. In sum, the requested subpoenas in no way resemble a fishing expedition. The, quote, kinds of documents President Trump seeks are narrow and specific. The video recordings of witness interviews the records the committee shipped out the door just before shutting down, and the correspondence related to the same. Based on the four letters attached as exhibits to this motion, or to the motion that we previously read, these are records respondents would be aware of and can easily locate. Indeed, the records were significant enough to engender a dispute amongst members of Congress regarding their disposition. Thus, Nixon's specificity prong is satisfied. Nixon is a case that he's referencing that uh, is precedent for all of this stuff as far as subpoenas go. Quote, as for the remainder of the tapes, the identity of the participants in the time and place of the conversations taken in their total context permit a rational inference that at least part of the conversations relate to the offenses charged in the indictment. There is no justification for relying upon assumption that the discovery will not yield useful information. The demonstration of what may be useful to the defense can properly and effectively be made only by an advocate, and that is the case they are citing to make the argument that these are relevant, and it's up to the defense to decide whether or not they're relevant because they're they're the ones who can make or can best make that assessment. Here, committee materials, and especially those transferred to government agencies in a procedural trick to avoid archive or archival, are manifestly relevant to this case. The committee's entire purpose was to investigate the events alleged in the indictment and conceding the obvious relevance of that investigation. The prosecution has produced large quantities of committee investigative material and discovery without any apparent relevancy withholdings. So too should president Trump have the right to obtain vital committee materials from other individuals and entities notwithstanding the committee's segregation of those materials to avoid archival and later production. Footnote. Ooh, a big footnote. Okay, what is this? 
The prosecution contends that video recordings of interviews are superfluous because transcripts may exist. Not so. First, video conveys far more information regarding a witness's demeanor, tone, and expression than a written transcript. That is very true. Second, many of the transcripts produced by the committee are not signed or otherwise adopted by the witness, meaning recordings will be essential to establishing authenticity and will also be needed as impeachment evidence if a witness denies making certain statements. Third, notwithstanding the committee's footnote that, quote, nonpartisan professional official reporters produce the transcripts, it provides no indication who these individuals are, and many transcripts do not say. Thus, Many transcripts lack the typical markers of authenticity on their face, including a court reporter's certification, and may never be authenticated. Hmm. Fourth, as many interviews took place via WebEx and other alternative methods, it appears that numerous transcripts were not created in real time by a court reporter sitting in on the interview, but were instead produced after the fact from the videos President Trump now seeks. This squarely presents a best evidence problem, as, quote, an original writing, recording, or photograph is required in order to prove its content unless these rules or a federal statute provides otherwise. A court reporter's transcript of a video is thus not a substitute for the video itself. Boom. Finally, Even setting aside the issues with the committee's documentation, the threshold question of relevance does not depend on on the creation of transcripts. Recorded statements discussing facts pertinent to this case are relevant in and of themselves and therefore satisfy that requirement regardless of any other potential evidence. Man, they're making a good argument here. A really good argument. Okay. For example, President Trump is entitled to all evidence regarding widely reported decisions made by former Speaker Nancy Pelosi and District of Columbia Mayor Mayor Muriel Bowser to not deploy the National Guard, which was authorized and made available by President Trump on January 6th, even if the committee wrongfully disposed of those materials before disbanding. Finally, The requested subpoena seek information that is relevant to motions for spoilation of evidence and due process violations based on unlawful coordination between the special counsel's office, NARA, and the select committee, among others. The requested records could be admissible as public records, could be used to refresh witness testimony, and could be admissible under the residual clause and will serve as important impeachment materials. Footnote. The court need not decide the precise grounds for admissibility at this stage. And they cite another case. Admittedly, it will often be difficult for pretrial. Okay, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Okay. These are all citation, citation. All right, next section. The prosecution's resistance to the requested subpoenas is emblematic of the injustice that pervades this case. President Trump, at the prosecution's request, has been repeatedly and unlawfully deprived of a fair and meaningful ability to defend the charges against him and prepare for trial. 
The prosecution's opposition to the requested subpoenas is just the latest example of that unconstitutional prejudice. Permitting a defendant to gather evidence ahead of any trial such that the defense may fully review the materials and incorporate them into a cohesive defense strategy likewise implicates the core of the Sixth Amendment right to effective assistance of counsel, which has historically been and remains today the opportunity for a defendant to consult with an attorney and to have him investigate the case and prepare a defense for trial. Okay, I want to make sure that she hasn't ruled on this. Because that was November 1st, so it's been like 20 days. So I'm going to control F the filing of 99. Let's see. Some other stuff is going to come up, but there's docket entry 99 position. She made an order telling Jack Smith he had until November 1st to respond, and he did respond. That's the only time that comes up. Sinai motion. Yeah, I don't think I don't think Chutkin has ruled on this. Making sure, gonna make sure. Breathe. Sorry, just trying to carefully scan this docket to make sure sh that she hasn't ruled on it. I don't think she has, but. Okay, no, she hasn't. They're having a hearing today. Um, what is it they're arguing about today? It just floated out of my head. Over the gag order, that's it. Um, the DC Appeals Court is uh, having a hearing today about the gag order that she issued in this case against Trump. All right, so one of the reasons that I wanted to go over that those discovery request filings, uh, one, because I suspected that they would be interesting, and they were, or at least I thought they were. Um, but the other reason is because the J January 6th footage got released. And um, I told BB last night for on a before we did the defected show that that the J six footage release was a big story this week. And it seemed like something we should talk about on defected, but at the same time, I didn't really want to because it's always so contentious. Um, the J six stuff. And I didn't want to, the number one reason was because anytime we talk about J six, the chat gets assaulted by trolls. Um, it's like the buzzword brings people in. And then the other thing is that in my opinion, and this is BB said 
this is why we should have talked about it <clears throat> because of what I'm about to say next. And he's right. Um, is because I feel like it's all outrage porn or outrage bait. Um, the January 6th footage that got released, most of it has already been out there. And the stuff that wasn't already out there is stuff that has been available to the January 6th defendants for them to get and use in their defense. So all of this stuff has been available in some fashion. And I'm not against it being released, okay? Like, I'm fine with that. But to me, it's turned into a uh, just bait. It's turned into just like red meat for the right. Like, um, almost like it's a stunt to release it. And there's been so much back and forth about it. And McCarthy had access to it. And then certain members of Congress went and looked at it. And... Um, Tucker and his producer had it. Um, and there's just been like this back and forth story. And, and, you know, maybe that's the point is to have this narrative ongoing as if um, the White House and DOJ are trying to hide the January 6th footage from the American people. And that really is the narrative that's out there is that it's trying to be hidden in order to this um, in order to protect the false narrative that the left prefers and the media prefers about January 6th. So they're hiding this footage, right? So that's like the narrative and I get that. But most of what I see after it was released are people just being outraged and a lot of it is selective outrage. And then there's a whole bunch of just garbage claims about it. Like you had immediately people saying that, oh, look, that guy's dressed as MAGA and he's holding up a badge when he was actually holding up a vape. And you could easily look the guy up and find out that he was arrested and charged and he broke into Pelosi's office and stole a picture from her office and he's in prison right now. Um, he's not some, but the, but it doesn't matter. Um, people were very quick to look at a still image from the video and say, Oh, look, he's holding up a badge. He must be a fed disguised as MAGA. When in actuality, he was a dude from Chicago who was an asshole who broke into Pelosi's office and stole something. Not exactly the kind of person we want to defend, but the facts don't matter because the facts get in the way of people's preferred narratives and they get in the way of people's outrage, which so many people are addicted to being outraged all the time. And then another one that was going around was that um, fist bump. Like, oh, look, they arrested that guy. And then he gives him a fist bump after they take him out of the cuffs and they let him go. So that shows he must be a secret informant or he's a fed dressed as MAGA or whatever. When, as best I can find, that guy was actually rearrested and charged. He was let go at that time. Maybe, and who knows why? I don't know why. Maybe it's because they mistaked him for someone who did something and they were, they let him go, right? Like maybe he got arrested. There was some kind of scuffle and he got arrested in it. And then the police say, ah, we're just actually, we're just going to, maybe they didn't actually arrest him at all. They just detained him to get, to break up whatever the brawl was. And then they let him go because they didn't want to go through the work of charging him, right? And when you learn um, 
When you learned that there were orders given that day to not arrest people and to instead try and manage the crowd, that scenario isn't that remarkable or surprising. But, you know, I just see a lot of people going through the J6 footage and not actually trying to understand what happened that day. But instead trying to find anything they can to support their preferred narrative and to further the outrage and not doing simple fact checking on what it is they're, they're cherry picking out. And so I really didn't want to get into that on defected last night. And I still don't really want to get into it. But at the same time, I recognize that it's exactly what we need to defect from all of this outrage bait and this outrage porn because it doesn't serve us well. And unfortunately, a lot of people get wrapped up into they're addicted to it. They're addicted to their outrage. And this is a bad place to be. All right. That's what I had to say about that, which is why I, I, I have J6 on the mind. But, um, yeah. All right. I'm trying to decide what I want to do next with this case because, um, all right. So the 18th, Skagorda went to U.S. Court of Appeals. They're going to have that hearing today. appeal and orders to Trump. I think I want to do the motions to dismiss, even though it's going to be, it's a lot. Whoa, what is this? Unauthorized deletions of classified information. What is this? Ooh. Okay, I saw this SIPA thing come up over here. Motion to access. This is for SIPA section four. I mean, really, guys, there's just so much outrage bait and outrage porn and clickbait on the right, specifically in relation to January 6th that you can't even have a meaningful conversation about it <laughs> until people start realizing that media on the right are lying to them about January 6th, just as much as media on the left. It's almost not even worth bringing up.
Where did that SIPA section five come up the first time? I see the SIPA section four. We did that. There it is. Okay. What is this? This I was going to go to the dismissals, but um, <clears throat> what is this from Trump? On October 26, 2023, President Trump's counsel provided to the classified information security officer for submission to the court and service on counsel a notice pursuant to SIPA 5 and an objection to redactions in certain of the classified discovery produced by the special by the special counsel's office. At the beginning of this month, the special counsel's office, office argued that, quote, the classified discovery issues in this case are limited, tangential, narrow, and incidental because the charges do not rely on classified materials. Through the SIPA 5 notice, President Trump demonstrates that, quote, the government appears to have looked with tunnel vision at limited issues it believed were relevant. The office was wrong. The indictment in this case adopts classified assessments by the intelligence community and others that minimized and at times ignored efforts by foreign actors to influence and interfere with the 2020 election. Oh, this is dasting. President Trump will offer classified information at trial relating to foreign influence activities that impacted the 2016-2020 elections. This is what John brought up on the show on Devolution Power Hour last Wednesday and showed me. Okay. as well as efforts by his administration to combat those activities. President Trump will also present classified information relating to the biased and politicized nature of the intelligence assessments that he and others rejected during the events in question. Collectively, this evidence will undercut central theories of the prosecution and establish that President Trump acted at all times in good faith and on the belief that what he was doing was what he had been elected to do. Highly intriguing. Okay, so that was docket entry 121. Where is that response? Where did that SIPA 5 go? Brief time. Ay ay ay. There's so many there's so many arguments going back and forth about different filings in this. Where did that sip of five go? Here it is. That's a, that's her order. I want to see Jack Smith's response to it first before I read her order. Okay, that's what I just read. Okay, here's her first order on it, telling the government they have until November 22nd to respond.
Did they ever respond? I thought I saw where they had responded. Okay, now I have to scan, scan, scan. Position. No, I guess I'm wrong. They haven't responded. Surely they did. Today is, it's past the 22nd. No, it's not past the 22nd. I don't even know what date it is. Today's the 20th. I feel like it's already Thanksgiving or like Thanksgiving's tomorrow. All right. So they haven't responded to that. That's really interesting. Okay. All right. What does chat think? Do y'all want to... Do y'all want me to read the the various... There's like several motions to dismiss. Do y'all want to get into the motions to dismiss? And I mean, it's going to be a really long read. I'm up for it, I think. I don't know. My voice may give out partway through it. But um, Or do y'all just want to like keep scanning the docket and just catch it all up and not worry about reading the motions to dismiss in full? Go ahead and type your say in chat, whatever you think, whatever y'all want to do. Jenna, thank you for the rant. Much appreciated. The government asked for more time to file a response to the discovery motion. I see. We've got like, we have the um, motions to dismiss or like one argument, you know, that's like getting at the heart of the case. Like they're attacking the indictment itself. But then there's this other argument happening over the subpoenas for missing records. And then there's another argument happening over the classified discovery. And then there's another argument happening in this case about the gag order, which is what the, the circuit, uh, the appeals circuit is hearing. Um, I was looking to see if there's any other arguments happening here. Oh yeah. And then there was the order uh, where Trump and them asked uh, the judge to order uh, inflammatory allegations to be stricken from the indictment. That was denied. Okay. Yeah. Let's do the, um, let's do the motions to dismiss and it's going to take us back. There's, there's a lot of them. I don't know if we'll get through all of them today. It will, I might blow up my voice if I, read all of them today, but I do think it's worth reading a motion to dismiss case. So there's, I believe there's four filings that are motion to dismiss. There's this one right here. There's one on constitutional grounds, one on statutory grounds, one for selective prosecution. Want to make sure that's all there are. Those four. Yeah, there's those four. So let's start with the the biggest one, which is this one right here that was filed on October 5th. 
that's going back a long way. And I remember it making news, uh, but I never, I never read it on this uh, show. I had an intention to do so, but I never did. It's long. It's very long, but let's, let's do it. That'll probably be the only, the last thing I do on the show is we'll get through this one. And, uh, and then on the next show, we'll, we'll read the other ones. Be worth it to see what Trump's team, what they're arguing. Okay. President, this is his original core, just motion to dismiss. President Trump moves to dismiss the indictment in this matter with prejudice based on, based on presidential immunity. In support, President Trump states the following. The President of the United States sits at the heart of our system of government. He is our nation's leader, our head of state, and our head of government. As such, the founders tasked the President and the President alone with the sacred obligation of, quote, taking care that the laws be faithfully executed. U.S. Constitution, Article 2, Paragraph 3. To ensure the President may serve unhesitatingly, without fear that his political opponents may one day prosecute him for decisions they dislike, the law provides absolute immunity, quote, for acts within the outer perimeter of the president's official responsibility, end quote. That is from Nixon versus Fitzgerald. Breaking 234 years of precedent, the incumbent administration has charged President Trump for acts that lie not just within the, quote, outer perimeter, but at the heart of his official responsibilities as president. In doing so, the prosecution does not and cannot argue that the president that President Trump's efforts to ensure election integrity and to advocate for the same were outside the scope of his duties. Instead, the prosecution falsely claims that President Trump's motives were impure, that he purportedly, quote, knew that the widespread reports of fraud and election irregularities were untrue, but sought to address them anyway. But as the Constitution, the Supreme Court, and hundreds of years of history and tradition all make clear, the president's motivations are not for the prosecution or this court to decide. Rather, where, as here, the president's actions are within the, am the ambit of his office, he is absolutely immune from prosecution. Therefore, the court should dismiss the indictment with prejudice. Legal standard, quote, in ruling on a motion to dismiss for failure to state an offense, a district court is, quote, typically limited to reviewing the face of the indictment and more specifically the language used to charge the crimes. When considering a motion to dismiss, the court must review the face of the indictment and the indictment must be viewed as a whole and the allegations must be accepted as true at this stage of the proceeding. Allegations in the indictment. President Trump the incumbent administration's leading opponent in the upcoming presidential election, emphatically denies the truth of any allegations in this indictment. Rather, this memorandum sets forth the facts alleged in the indictment so that their legal sufficiency may be assessed for a motion to dismiss. Moreover, the Supreme Court has, quote, repeatedly stressed the importance of resolving immunity questions at the earliest possible stage in litigation. Accordingly, this motion addresses only the question of presidential immunity. Other fatal deficiencies in the indictment will be addressed in future motions and proceedings. The indictment alleges that President Trump took a series of actions that form the basis of the charges. These acts fall into five basic categories. The indictment alleges that President Trump, while he was president, one, 
made public statements about the administration of the federal election and posted tweets about the administration of the federal election. Two, communicated with senior Department of Justice officials about investigating election fraud and others and about choosing the leadership of DOJ. Three, communicated with state officials about the administration of the federal election and their exercise of official duties with respect to it. Four, communicated with the vice president in his legislative capacity as president of the Senate and with other members of Congress about the exercise of their official duties regarding election certification. And five, authorized or directed others to organize contingent slates of electors in furtherance of his attempts to convene the vice president, convince the vice president to exercise his official authority in a manner advocated for by President Trump. Footnote. In certain cases, the, the, the indictment does not specify whether President Trump had direct involvement in, in, in many of these actions or even knew why they were occurring or even knew they were occurring. But even assuming that he did, the acts alleged are still of a public character. That is true. It's too bad that some people in uh, putting together the slates of alternate electors engaged in some illegality. But I also think that was part of the plan. I think that uh, nefarious people tried to feed Trump and Pence false electors in order to as part of a trap. That is my opinion. The fake elector thing is a trap that Trump and Pence avoided, thankfully. A. Public statements and tweets about the federal election and certification. First, the indictment alleges that President Trump, while he was still president, made public statements about the administration of the 2020 federal election. Alleging public statements claiming fraud, blah, 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 blah. They're citing various statutes. Um... Document one, alleging public statements claiming fraud in administration of the election. Oh, no, I mean, not. They're quoting the indictment. Sorry. Paragraph 11 through 12, alleging a series of public statements claiming fraud in the election. 19, public statements about election fraud in Arizona. Public statements about regarding Georgia's election administration. Public statement about fraudulent voting in Georgia. Public statement about suggesting fraudulent voting in Detroit, another one about Michigan, another one about Michigan, another one about Pennsylvania, about Wisconsin, so on and so forth. Public statements about scope of vice president authority on January 6th, et cetera, et cetera. Closely related to the allegations of public statements, the indictment alleges that President Trump posted a series of tweets about the administration of the federal election and its certification. Tweet addressing evidence of election fraud in Georgia. Another one about Wisconsin. Another one urging Americans to protest fraud. A tweet regarding vice president's authority regarding election certification proceedings. Tweets regarding vice president's election certification authority and encouraging Americans to protest election fraud. Tweets about the vice president's authority. Tweet about the scope of the vice president's authority. Tweets urging protesters to stay truthful. Stay peaceful and to remain peaceful, no violence. Those are quotes. Tweet of a video claiming fraud in the election, etc. B, communications with the DOJ and investigating election crimes with the new acting attorney general. The indictment alleges that President Trump attempted to, quote, use the power and authority of the Justice Department to conduct election crime investigations 
and to send a letter to the targeted states from the Justice Department that claimed that the Justice Department had identified significant concerns that may have impacted the election outcome. The indictment alleges a series of meetings and communications between President Trump and others, including senior officials in the U.S. Department of Justice, relating to the investigation of federal election fraud and possibly appointing a new acting attorney general of the United States. Yeah, Trump didn't do that, which this says, and he didn't do it because Jeffrey Clark, I don't think he's a good one. I am not convinced that Jeffrey Clark is a good one at all. Jeffrey Clark is part of the reason this indictment says this stuff because Jeffrey Clark came up with these ideas. All right. Alleging a meeting with the incoming acting attorney general and acting deputy attorney general quote to discuss allegations of election fraud. And then it's a phone call with them communications with attorney general about election fraud in Michigan Two communications with acting attorney general and acting deputy attorney general to urge them to investigate fraud in Pennsylvania Communication urging acting attorney general and acting deputy attorney general to investigate fraud in Wisconsin. Meetings and communications with Department of Justice officials about investigating election fraud or selecting an acting attorney general who was willing. That See, that's Jeffrey Clark right there. That's not Trump. That's Jeffrey Clark. Attempt to convince the Department of Justice to send a letter to state officials expressing concern about election fraud. I believe that is also Jeffrey Clark, who was outside the bounds of his duties. Phone call with the acting attorney general and acting deputy attorney general about changing the leadership at DOJ. <clears throat> Oval office meeting with the acting attorney general, the acting deputy, and other advisors about election fraud and possibly changing leadership of DOJ. Meeting with DOJ officials at the White House and allegedly offering him the role of acting attorney general. He did not. He did not. Meeting with the act, acting attorney general, the acting deputy attorney general, and the assistant attorney general for the Office of Legal Counsel. White House counsel, deputy, senior advisor, etc., which the president decided not to do. He did not change leadership at the DOJ, which is probably another trap. Communications with state officials about federal election and exercise of their official duties. The indictment alleges a series of communications, some by President Trump and some by other unnamed individuals with state officials about the administration of the federal election and the exercise of their official duties with respect to the federal election. And it cites communications with the Speaker of the House in Arizona, members of the Georgia Senate, and about certifying presidential lectures or electors, uh, the phone call with Raffensperger, phone call with Secretary of State Raffensperger, meeting with Speaker of Michigan House of Reps, Communications with the Michigan legislature, meeting with Pennsylvania state legislators. Okay. Communications with vice president and members of Congress. The indictment charges that President Trump attempted to, quote, enlist the vice president to use his ceremonial role at the January 6th certification proceeding to alter the election results. By, quote, attempting to convince the vice president to rely on contingent slates of electors submitted by the president's alleged allies. That is not exactly what Trump urged him to do. That is not what he asked him to do. He asked him to reject the slates of electors from states with a lot of fraud. That's what he asked him to do. He didn't ask him to accept the alternate slates of electors because um, there were none <clears throat> that were illegal. There were no legal alternate slates of electors. 
And that's not according to me. That's according to the House parliamentarian. Here, the indictment alleges that President Trump and others on his official staff made a series of communications with the vice president in his legislative capacity as president of the Senate about the exercise of his official duties and the January 6th election certification proceedings. Alleging, quote, several private phone calls in December 2020 and January 2021 between the defendant and the vice president in which the defendant allegedly urged the vice president to, quote, to use his ceremonial role at the certification proceeding on January 6th to overturn the results of the election. He never asked him to overturn it. Not even, well, I'll leave that out. Okay, another meeting with Pence and chief of staff, alleged meeting with vice president on the same topic. This is where Pence's book comes in really handy because um, he details all of this right here and it conflicts with what Jack Smith has in his indictment. Phone call with vice president urging him to exercise his authority as president of the Senate. All right. Six U.S. Senate. Oh, yeah. Then the conversations with the other senators and reps. Okay. Organizing slates of electors as part of the attempt to convince legislators not to certify. Closely related to these communications with the vice president and members of Congress, the indictment alleges that other individuals organized slates of contingent electors from several states to provide a justification for the vice president to exercise his official duties in the manner favored by President Trump. According to the indictment, these contingent slates of electors allowed President Trump in his communications with the vice president to justify the exercise of the vice president's authority to certify the election in President Trump's favor or delay its certification. The indictment alleges that President Trump knew of these actions organizing the slates of electors and directed them to continue, but it does not allege that President Trump took any particular action in organizing them. That should really, really stand out to folks. This right here should really stand out. It makes it glaringly obvious that Trump doesn't want anything to do with these fake slates of electors. He's not the person behind them. He wasn't organizing this. He wasn't directing that. And the reason he wasn't is because some of what they were doing is illegal. And that's just, that's just the truth. They falsified documents and they wound up in trouble. And I feel really bad for them. I feel really bad for them that they got wrapped up in that. But there were no legal alternate slates of electors in 2020. If there were legal ones, so be it. Then we got a real issue. But as it were, there were not any legal ones. And now people are in trouble for creating fraudulent ones. And that sucks because I think they probably had the best of intentions, the people that were on the ground involved in it and put their names to it. But I think the people above them that were directing it, encouraging this behavior did not have their best interest in mind and were setting up a trap for Trump and Pence. A trap that they both avoided. And then here, Jack Smith is trying to tie Trump into it. It's not going to work. Just like Fannie Willis is trying to tie Trump into those efforts. It's not going to work because he did not direct that. Okay, argument. The president has absolute immunity from criminal prosecution for actions performed within the outer perimeter of his official responsibility. Quote, in view of the special nature of the president's constitutional office and functions, 
a current or former president has, quote, absolute presidential immunity from civil damages, liability for acts within the outer perimeter of his official responsibility. No court has addressed whether such presidential immunity includes immunity from criminal prosecution for the president's official act. The question remains a, quote, serious and unsettled question of law. In light of the special solitude or solicitude due to claims alleging a threatened breach of essential presidential prerogatives under the separation of powers, issued a presidential immunity were, quote, serious and unsettled. Uh, immunity were serious and unsettled. Okay. In addressing this question, the court should consider the Constitution's text, structure and original meaning, historical practice, the court's precedents and immunity doctrines, and considerations of public policy. The doctrine of separation of powers and the president's unique role in our constitutional structure require immunity from criminal prosecution. The president occupies a unique position in the constitutional scheme. Article 2, Section 1, or Paragraph 1 of the Constitution provides that, quote, the executive power shall be vested in a president of the United States. This grant of authority establishes the president as the chief constitutional officer of the executive branch entrusted with supervisory and policy responsibilities of utmost discretion and sensitivity. Due to, the, to this, quote, unique status in our constitutional structure of separated powers, which, quote, distinguishes him from other executive officials. The Supreme Court held in Fitzgerald that the president is and must be, quote, absolutely immune from damages, liability, uh, damages, liability predicated on his official acts. Quote, we consider this immunity a functionally mandated incident of the president's unique office rooted in the constitutional tradition of the separation of powers and supported by our history. The policies and principles mandating immunity may be considered implicit in the nature of the president's office in a system structured to achieve effective government under a constitutionally mandated separation of powers. In reaching this conclusion, the Supreme Court held that subjecting a president to personal liability for his official actions would improperly divert the president's energies and raise unique risk to the effective functioning of government, especially given the singular importance of the president's duties. Chief among these risks is the chilling effect personal, personal liability would have on the president's decision making, particularly in matters likely to arouse the most intense feelings. Quote, it is in precisely such cases that there exists the greatest public interest in providing an official the maximum ability to deal fearlessly and impartially with the duties of his office. This concern is compelling where the office holder must make the most sensitive and far-reaching decisions entrusted by any official under our constitutional system. Is this, um, sorry to, you know, but there's like accounts I've never seen before posting this vcora.com thing. Are these all spam accounts? Like, I've seen it a couple times in chat and I'm guessing these are spam bots that are trying to get you to go to some website. Because they're not, it doesn't look like they're doing it as part of a conversation that's happening. Yeah, there's like five different ones and the only thing they've posted in chat is a, a link. So I think they're spam bots I need to get rid of real quick. Don't click their links, y'all. Yeah, 
Okay. Yeah, maybe they're CIA spam bots. Who knows? Or CCP spam bots. Okay. Quote, nor can the sheer prominence of the president's office be ignored. In view of the visibility of his office and the effect of his actions on countless people, the president would be an easily identifiable target for prosecution in countless federal, state, and local jurisdictions across the country. The cogn cognizance of this personal vulnerability frequently could distract a president from his public duties to the detriment of not only the president and his office, but also the nation and the presidency was designed to serve. That makes total sense to me. I hope it does to y'all too. Um, we, the president has to have immunity or else he would not be able to function as president. Although Fitzgerald concerns civil liability, the exact same, if not more elevated, concerns apply to potential criminal prosecutions, maintaining the same absolute immunity. Yeah, I mean, if you can't be civilly liable, then you can't be criminally liable. Vertical and horizontal separation of power simply cannot permit local, state, or subsequent federal officials to constrain the president's exercise of executive judgment through threats of criminal prosecution. To hold otherwise would be to allow the president's political opponents to usurp or her, his or her constitutional role, fundamentally impairing our system of government. For this very reason, Fitzgerald recognized that presidential immunity is not just a creation of common law, but also, quote, rooted in the separation of powers under the Constitution. Footnote. To be sure, Fitzgerald did not decide whether presidential immunity extends to criminal prosecution. And it acknowledged that, quote, there is a lesser public interest in actions of civil, civil damages than in criminal prosecutions. But the fact that the doctrine of presidential immunity is rooted in the separation of powers dictates that immunity must extend to criminal prosecution as well as civil liability. While the, quote, public interest in criminal prosecutions may be important, it is not important enough to justify abrogating the separation of powers, the most fundamental structural feature of our constitutional system. Further, the exposure to criminal prosecution poses a far greater threat than the prospect of civil lawsuits to the president's, quote, maximum ability to deal fearlessly and impartially with the duties of his office. And thus, it raises even greater risk to the effective functioning of government. Fitzgerald's reasoning, therefore, entails that presidential immunity include immunity from both civil suit and criminal prosecution. Makes a lot of sense to me. Nothing is so politically effective as the ability to charge the ones of, that one's opponents and his associates are not merely wrongheaded, naive, ineffective, but in all probability crooks. And nothing so effectively gives an appearance of validity to such charges as a Justice Department investigation and even better, a prosecution. That was a quote from Morrison versus Olson with Scalia dissenting. Quote, the present indictment provides ample means for that sort of attack, assuring that massive and lengthy investigations and prosecutions will occur, bedeviling every future presidential administration and ushering in a new era of political recrimination and division. Analogically, the executive privilege protecting presidential communications is also designed to protect the president's ability to function in his role to the maximum extent and, quote, is fundamental to the operation of government and inextricably rooted in the separation of powers under the Constitution. 
Next section. Impeachment and conviction by the Senate provide the exclusive method of proceeding against a president for crimes in office. Presidential immunity from criminal prosecution for official acts is also rooted in the text of the Constitution. The impeachment clauses provide that the president may be charged by indictment only in cases where the president has been impeached and convicted by trial in the Senate. Here, the president, President Trump was acquitted by the Senate for the same course of conduct. Isn't it great? Commentary for me. Isn't it great that the Democrats and rhinos tried to impeach Trump twice and failed? And now Trump can say, hey, you know, they tried to impeach me for this, you know, the legal way, the constitutional way that are that we have set up here to deal with presidents who go outside the bounds of their authority. We have this constitutionally created means impeachment that allows us to deal with a president who is criming around, as BB would say, and they tried to do this judge. And President Trump was acquitted. What is it I need to admit, Wild Boar? <laughs> what is it that I need to admit? What, what is that? What do I need to admit? <laughs> it's, it's so great how Trump's enemies constantly do what he wants them to do. They fall for the reverse psychology every time. Admit that I love you. <laughs> no. That ain't gonna happen. It One, it wouldn't be an admi admission. Uh, <laughs> uh, that is things that will never happen. Okay. The impeachment clause. Um, okay. The impeachment clause of Article 1 provides that, quote, judgment in cases of impeachment shall not extend further than, to rem than removal from office, but the party convicted shall nevertheless be liable and subject to indictment, trial, judgment, and punishment according to law. U.S. Constitution Article 1, Paragraph 3, Clause 7. Because the Constitution specifies that only, quote, the party convicted by trial in the Senate may be, quote, liable and subject to indictment, trial, judgment, and punishment, it presupposes that a president who is not convicted may not be subject to criminal prosecution. As Justice Alito recently noted, quote, the plain implication of this clause is that criminal prosecution, like removal from the presidency and disqualification from other offices, is a consequence that can come about only after the Senate's judgment, not during or prior to the Senate trial. That was Trump v. v. Vance with Alito dissenting. Quote, this was how Hamilton explained the impeachment provision in the Federalist Papers. He wrote that a president may be impeached, tried, in a, and upon conviction, would afterwards be liable to prosecution and punishment in the ordinary course of law. And it cites Federalist number 69, paragraph 416, or is it page 416, I think. <clears throat> and then Federalist number 77, uh, page 464, 
A president is, quote, at all times liable to impeachment, trial, and dismissal from office. But any other punishment must come come only, quote, by subsequent prosecution in the common course of law. And it cites an interpretation. Uh, Quote, when a car dealer promises a low financing rate to purchasers with good credit, it is entirely clear that the rate is not available to purchasers with spotty credit. (laughs) James Wilson, who had participated in the Philadelphia Convention, this is a quote, at which the document was drafted, explained that the president is amenable to the laws in his private character as a citizen and in his public character by impeachment. With respect to acts taken in his public character, that is, official acts, the president may be disciplined principally by impeachment, not by private lawsuits for damages, but he is otherwise subject to the laws for his purely private acts. Fitzgerald reinforced this conclusion, quote, a rule of absolute immunity for the president will not leave the nation without sufficient protection against misconduct on the part of the chief executive. There remains the constitutional remedy of the impeachment. In addition, There are formal and informal checks on presidential action. The president is subjected to constant scrutiny by the press. Vigilant oversight by Congress also may serve to deter presidential abuses of office, as well as to make credible the threat of impeachment. Other incentives to avoid misconduct may include a desire to earn re-election and need to maintain prestige as an element of presidential influence and a president's traditional concern for his historical nature. Notably absent from Fitzgerald's list of, quote, formal and informal checks on the president for abuses of office is any mention of criminal prosecution. Here, President Trump is not a party convicted in an impeachment trial by the Senate. In January 2021, he was impeached on charges arising from the same course of conduct at issue in the indictment. President Trump was acquitted of these charges at trial in the Senate, and he thus remains immune from prosecution. The special counsel cannot second-guess the judgment of the duly elected United States Senate. Damn. All right, I'm glad we're reading this because this is good. This is damn good. Rumble rant from Motivated Mom WV. Thank you very much. They say, I'm a defected and Devolution Power Hour replay listener. I don't usually see you online and wanted to let you know I appreciate all your nerdy news. Glad you're back and Hercules is okay. Much love and press. Thank you very much, Motivated Mom. I really appreciate that. There's another one of those bots. What is going on? That's like six or seven of them now. Hmm. Don't click the links. It probably steals your data. All right. Early authority support presidential immunity. Pretty sure my wife is picking up our toddler from school today. I better check on that soon. I better check on that now. (laughs) Better make sure. Okay. All right. In Marbury versus Madison, Charles Lee, Attorney General of the United States under President George Washington and John Adams. Um, 
By the way, I'm getting a buzzing in my ear. I think it's my headphones when I'm talking. I hope it's not coming through in the mic <clears throat> for y'all. I don't think it is. I think it's something with my headphones. Okay. President George Washington John Adams, quote, declared it to be my opinion grounded on a comprehensive view of the subject that the president is not amenable to any court of judic judicature for the exercise of high functions, but is responsible only in the mode pointed out in the Constitution, Marbury versus Madison. So the president, let me read that again. It is my opinion that grounded on a comprehensive view of the subject, the president is not amenable to any court of judicature for the exercise of his high functions, but it's responsible only in the mode pointed out in the Constitution. All right. That cites Marbury versus Madison, one of the most famous cases there is. In his opinion for the court, Chief Justice Marshall endorsed this view. Quote, by the Constitution of the United States, the president is invested with certain important political powers in the exercise of which he is to use his own discretion and is accountable only to his country and his political character and to his own conscience. In cases involving the president's official duties, quote, whatever opinion may be entertained of the manner in which executive discretion may be used, still there exists and can exist no power to control that discretion. The subjects are political. They respect the nation not individual rights, and being entrusted to the executive, the decision of the executive is conclusive. Quote, the acts of such an officer, as an officer, can never be examinable by the courts. When the president acts in cases in which the executive possesses a constitutional or legal discretion, <clears throat> nothing can be more perfectly clear than that their acts are only politically examinable. If the president acts in a case in which executive discretion is to be exercised, any application to a court to control in any respect his conduct would be rejected without hesitation. Justice Story cited Marbury versus Madison for this point in his off cited 1833 treatise. Quote, there are other incidental powers belonging to the executive department, department which are necessarily implied from the nature of the functions which are confided to it. Among these must necessarily be included the power to perform them without any obstruction or impediment whatsoever. The president cannot, therefore, be liable to arrest, imprisonment, or detention while he is in the discharge of the duties of his office. And for this purpose, his person must be deemed, in civil cases at least, <clears throat> to possess a, an official inviolability. In the exercise of his political powers, he is to use his own discretion and is accountable only to his country and to his own conscience. <coughs> Pardon me. His decision in relation to these powers is subject to no control, and his discretion when exercised is conclusive. Guys, this is a commentary for me. This is why Special Counsel Her can't charge Biden. Even if Special Counsel Her discovered high crimes that Biden committed. He can't charge him while he's president. However, he could, I don't know, write a highly critical report and present it to the House and the Senate and appear for hearings and then that report 
could be used to impeach the president. And then after he successfully impeached, he could be held criminally liable. But not unless that happens. And that is why there won't be any charges against Biden by special counsel her. There might be, I, I still think there might, there might be charges against others though. I would not be surprised if there are charges against others, just not Biden. Still, I don't think Biden will be impeached. I just think it might come close, might come close or 25th. I think it'll become close, but I don't think it'll happen. All right. Likewise, Martin versus Mott held that, quote, when the president exercises an authority confided to him by law, his conduct cannot be second guessed by a jury. If the fact of the existence of the exigency were averred, it could would be traversable and, of course, might be passed upon by a jury. And thus the legality of the orders of the president would depend not on his own judgment of the facts, but upon the findings of those facts upon the proof submitted to a jury. Tenney versus Brandhove held that the immunity of members of Congress, quote, would be of little value if they could be subjected to the hazard of a judgment against them based upon a jury's speculation as to motives. Okay. In Nixon versus Fitzgerald, the Supreme Court emphasized that, quote, the pre- the presuppositions, the presuppositions of our political history, including traditions so well grounded in history and reason, help to define the scope of presidential immunity. Here, 234 years of unbroken historical practice, from 1789 until 2023, provide compelling evidence that the power to indict a former president for his official acts does not exist. No prosecutor, whether state, local, or federal, has this authority, and none has sought to exercise it until now. American history teems with situations where the opposing party passionately contended that the president and his closest advisors were guilty of criminal behavior in carrying out their official duties. John Quincy Adams and his corrupt bargain with Henry Clay provides a notable example. In every such case, the outraged opposing party eventually took power. Yet none ever brought criminal charges against the former president based on his executive exercise of official duties, nor did any state or local prosecutor of the thousands of such officials throughout the history and tradition of the United States attempt a similar maneuver. A strong historical practice of not exercising a supposed power, especially when there has been ample incentive and opportunity to do so undercuts the sudden discovery of the newly minted power. Quote, it is telling that OSHA, wait, what is this about OSHA? NFIB versus OSHA. I'll skip it. All right. 
E, analogous immunity doctrines support presidential immunity from criminal prosecution. Analogous immunity doctrines strongly favor the conclusion that absolute presidential immunity extends to immunity from criminal prosecution. One, presidential immunity from civil suits. First, Nixon versus Fitzgerald holds that the president is absolutely immune from personal liability for conduct within the outer perimeter of his official duties. The inference that such immunity should include both civil and criminal liability is compelling. In their common law origins, immunity doctrines extend to both civil and criminal liability because, quote, the immunity of federal executive officials began as a means of protecting them in the execution of their federal statutory duties from criminal or civil actions based on state law. Common law immunity doctrines, therefore, encompass the, quote, privilege to be free from arrest or civil process, criminal and civil proceedings alike. In fact, immunity from criminal prosecution is more fundamental to the concept of official immunity than immunity from mere lawsuits for civil damages, as such doctrines are arose primarily to avoid retribution via criminal charges brought by government officials. 2. Absolute judicial immunity. Like absolute executive immunity, absolute judicial immunity protects state and federal judges from criminal prosecution, as well as civil suits based on their official judicial acts. In Spalding versus Vias, the, the Supreme Court noted that the doctrine of judicial immunity extends to both civil suit and indictment. In Pearson, likewise, the Supreme Court held that, quote, this immunity applies even when the judge is accused of acting maliciously and corruptly. At common law, judicial immunity included immunity from criminal prosecution. Quote, in the case of courts of record, it was held certainly as early as the 14th century, that a litigant could not go beyond the record in order to make a judge civilly or criminally liable for his, an abuse of his jurisdiction. In accordance with this long common law tradition, our courts have universally rejected criminal charges against judges for their judicial acts. In the United States versus Chaplin, <clears throat> for instance, the court held the judicial immunity barred the criminal prosecution of a judge who was, quote, acting in his official capacity within his jurisdiction in imposing sentence and probation upon a person charged with an offense in his court to charge to which the defendant had pleaded guilty. In reaching this conclusion, the chaplain court extensively reviewed historic authorities and, like those authorities, determined criminal prosecutions of judges for judicial acts, quote, would destroy the independence of the judiciary and mark the beginning of the end of an in independent and fearless judiciary. The same reasoning applies to the president here. Concerns of public policy favor the president's immunity from prosecution. In considering presidential immunity, <coughs> in considering presidential immunity, the Supreme Court, quote, has weighed concerns of public policy, especially as illuminated by our history and the structure of our government. Here, public policy overwhelmingly supports the finding of immunity. One, the presidency involves especially sensitive duties. First, the Supreme Court emphasizes the necessity of robust immunity for officials who have especially sensitive duties, such as prosecutors and judges. No one exercises more sensitive duties than the president. Quote, under the Constitution and the laws of the United States, the president has discretionary responsibilities in a broad variety of areas, many of them highly sensitive. Got another bot. Boom. As the government recently explained, 
Immunity reaches all of the president's conduct within the vast ambit of his office, including its innumerable constitutional, statutory, and historical dimensions. In all contexts, questions of presidential immunity must be approached with the greatest sensitivity to the unremitting demands of the presidency. Blasting game versus Trump. Two, the presidency requires bold and unhesitating action. Second, the Supreme Court reasons that immunity is not appropriate for officials from whom, quote, bold and unhesitating action is required. This is in, to, quote, to submit all officials, the innocent as well as the guilty, to the burden of a trial and to the inevitability, inevitable danger of its outcome would dampen the ardor of all but the most resolute or the most irresponsible in the unflinching discharge of their duties and subject them to the constant dread of retaliation. In Vance, the Supreme Court noted this concern was central to its adoption of the absolute immunity for the president, holding that Fitzgerald, quote, concluded that a president must deal fearlessly and impartially with the duties. Whoa. Okay, I don't think they're a bot. I think it just posted what they said five times. All right. Good morning to you as well. The president must deal fearlessly and impartially with the duties of his office, not be made unduly cautious in the discharge of those duties by the prospect of civil liability for official acts. And as the Supreme Court has emphasized, it is precisely in such circumstances that there is the greatest public interest in providing the, the president with the maximum ability to deal fearlessly and impartially with the duties of his office. <clears throat> For that reason, the Supreme Court emphasizes that, quote, in exercising the functions of his office, the head of an executive department, keeping within the limits of his authority, should not be under an apprehension that the motives that control his official conduct may at any time become the subject of inquiry in a civil suit for damages. It would seriously cripple, cripple the proper and effective administration of public affairs, as entrusted to the executive branch of the government, if he were subjected to any such restraint. <clears throat> Quote, frequently acting under serious constraints of time and even information, a president inevitably makes many important decisions and defending these decisions, often years after they were made, could impose unique and intolerable burdens. The president's focus should not be blurred by even the subconscious knowledge of the risk of future prosecution. The threat of criminal prosecution, the threat of criminal prosecution poses a greater risk of deterring bold and unhesitating action from the threat of civil suit and therefore requires at least the same immunity to ensure the president maintains the maximum ability to deal fearlessly and impartially with the duties of his office. There is no question that a criminal prosecution holds far greater potential for distracting a president and diminishing his ability to carry out his responsibilities than does the average civil suit. That is Alito. Three, without immunity, the president would be harassed by vexatious actions. Another key purpose of immunity for officials is to prevent them being harassed by vexatious actions. In Embler, the Supreme Court held that the common law immunity of prosecutors rest on the, quote, concern that harassment by unfounded litigation would cause a deflection of the prosecutor's energies from his public duties and the possibility that he would shade his decisions instead of exercising the independence of judgment required by his public trust. 
the president as the most high-profile government official in the country is most likely to draw politically motivated ire and most likely to be targeted for harassment by vexatious actions. All right, section two, the indictment alleges only acts committed within the core of the president's eventual responsibility, which are shielded by absolute immunity. I am enjoying this, but I need a drink of water. I am out of coffee and I need a drink of water. So we're going to take a short break, which we haven't done in a while. Uh, let me find a little bit of music. So give me just over three minutes. Okay. We're going to take a short intermission so that I can go get some water. And uh, then we'll come back and we're going to keep reading this thing. So let me uh, start this music and I'll be right back. Peace. 
There we go. <clears throat> All right. And there's another one of those spam bots. These things are coming out of a factory in China. Lucky dog, thank you for the rant. <clears throat> it's good to be back in. <clears throat> I'm enjoying reading this, this filing. I think my voice will hold up. I just may have to keep clearing my throat. <clears throat> Eventually I'll be over. Whatever it was I had. Uh, World War Three, World War Four variant of COVID, I guess. Okay, I'm really liking, really liking this this filing. I'm glad we decided to read it. Good arguments in it. Um. Okay. The indictment alleges only acts committed within the core of the president's official responsibilities, which are shielded by absolute immunity. The indictment is based entirely on alleged actions within the heartland of President Trump's official duties, or at very least within the outer perimeter of his official duties. As President Trump is absolutely immune from criminal prosecution for such acts, the courts should the court should dismiss the indictment. A. The scope of criminal immunity includes all actions that fall within the outer perimeter of the president's official duties. The Supreme Court adopted the expansive outer perimeter test for immunity precisely because any functional test would be inconsistent with the broad scope of presidential duties. This immunity, the Supreme Court has explained, may not be curtailed by attempting to parse discrete presidential functions or through allegations that official acts were taken with improper motives. Because the president has discretionary responsibilities in a broad variety of areas, in many cases it would be difficult to determine which of the president's innumerable functions encompassed a particular action. In other words, the outer perimeter of the president's duties, and thus the scope of presidential immunity, encircles a vast swath of territory, because the scope of the president's duty and authority in our constitutional system is uniquely and extraordinarily broad. Look at this footnote here. There's another one of those bots. Oh, these things. Man, somebody paid, paid a few dollars to... Uh, Rate all these things. DLMNV, thank you very much for the rant. Nice. I'm glad you enjoy me reading these docs. I find it interesting too. Thank you very much. All right. This footnote says that Vance held that the need to avoid vexatious litigation was not, standing alone, sufficient to shield the president from criminal subpoena for private records. However, Criminal prosecutions for official acts raise numerous additional practical and prudential concerns that do not apply in the subpoena context. It is these additional factors, in combination with the risk of vexatious litigation, that compels executive immunity, as Fitzgerald, Spaulding, Butts, Imbler, and similar cases have held. Okay. The scope of the president's duties as detailed in Article 2. Okay, Article 2 makes a single president responsible for the actions of the executive branch. And the president is, quote, the only person who alone composes a branch of government. 
That's from Trump versus Mazars back in 2020. Among these Article 2 duties, perhaps the most fundamental are the framers' dual mandates that he hold, quote, the executive power and with it the duty to, quote, take care that the laws be faithfully executed. U.S. Constitution, Article 2, Paragraph 1 and 3. To this end, the president must assume, quote, supervisory and policy responsibilities of utmost discretion and sensitivity, which include the enforcement of federal law. The president's duties, which range from faithfully executing the laws to commanding the armed forces, are of unrivaled gravity and breadth. And quite appropriately, those duties come with protections that safeguard the president's ability to perform his vital functions. Additionally, the court looks to the president as the leader of the nation for guidance and reassurance, even on matters over which the executive branch or the federal government as a whole has no direct control. From the actions of Congress and the judiciary, to the policies of state and local governments, to the conduct of private corporations and individuals, the president can and must engage with the public on matters of public concern. Thus, even where a president's actions are, quote, directed toward the constitutional responsibilities of another branch of government or concern matters for which the president himself bears no direct constitutional or statutory responsibility. His actions are still within the quote outer perimeter of his official duties. And that is according to Fitzgerald. Without question, the president, quote, occupies a unique office with powers and responsibilities so vast and important that the public interest demands that he devote his undivided time and attention to his public duties. As the Supreme Court held, quote, the higher the post, the broader the range of responsibilities and duties and the wider the scope of discretion it entails as the highest of all posts. The presidency warrants the broadest possible immunity and acts must fall within its outer perimeter unless clearly established as beyond his duties. Absolute immunity is extended to few officers and it is denied only if the officer acts without any colorable claim of authority. And that is a quote from Bernard versus the County of Suffolk, 2004. All right, part B, the nature of the act, not the manner in which it is conducted or its alleged purpose, determines whether it falls within the scope of immunity. In deciding what conduct falls within the scope of official duties, courts apply an objective text based on the nature of the act, not the manner in which it was conducted, or any allegedly malicious purpose. Thus, the immunity is not overcome by allegations of bad faith or malice, nor is immunity defeated by an allegation that the president acted illegally. From, see, from Fitzgerald, again, quote, an inquiry into the president's motives to determine whether a particular action was done in furtherance of a legitimate function or for nefarious reasons would be highly intrusive and would impermissibly, quote, subject the president to trial on virtually every allegation that an action was unlawful or was taken for a forbidden purpose. I think we're up to banning 10 bots now. Not, certainly not a record. I've banned a lot more on the show, but we're, get, we're approaching a record. <clears throat> okay. 
The Supreme Court has repeatedly emphasized this point. From Fitzgerald and Fisher, quote, the allegation of malicious or corrupt motives could always be made, and if the motives could be inquired into judges, would be subjected to the same vexatious litigation upon such allegations, whether the motives had or had not any real existence. As Judge Learned Hands, wow, his name is Learned Hands. Judge Learned, okay, I'm going to look this up. Judge Learned Hands. That can't be a real name. Wow, it's real. It is real. He's a real person. His name is Learned Hand. He has big eyebrows. Billings, Learned Hand, or Learned. Bill, I bet they said Learned. Billings, Learned Hand. Yeah, Learned was an American jurist, lawyer, and judicial philosopher. Okay. Learn it. Yeah, music and fiction is already on it. Learn it. <clears throat> As Judge Learned Hands often cited analysis of this question states, quote, the immunity decisions have indeed always imposed as a certain limitation upon the immunity that the official's acts or act must have been within the scope of his power. And it can be argued that official powers, since they exist only for the public good, never cover occasions where the public good is not their aim. And hence, that to exercise a power dishonestly is necessarily to overstep its bounds. A moment's reflection shows, however, that that cannot be the meaning of the limitation without defeating the whole doctrine. What is meant by saying that the officer must be acting within his power cannot be more than that the occasion must be such as would have justified the act. If he had been using his power for any of the purposes on whose account it was vested in him. An unworthy purpose behind the communication does not destroy the privilege for immunity and would be of little use if it could be defeated by a jury speculation as motives. That's quoting Barr. The outer perimeter of the president's official responsibility would shrink to nothing if a plaintiff merely by reciting the official acts were part of an unlawful conspiracy could have them treated by the courts as unofficial conduct. Nor does a mere allegation that an act was unlawful or otherwise inconsistent with a particular statutory scheme place it beyond the outer perimeter of the president's official responsibility. For example, in Fitzgerald, the plaintiff, a federal employee working for the Air Force, argued that President Nixon exceeded his official responsibilities in unlawfully causing the plaintiff's dismissal without adherence to certain statutory processes and protections. Quote, because Congress has granted this legislative protection, no federal official could, within the outer perimeter of his duties of office, cause Fitzgerald to be dismissed without satisfying the standard and prescribed statutory proceedings. The Supreme Court rejected this argument, holding President Nixon's general constitutional and statutory authority to oversee the Air Force placed the nature of his acts comfortably within the outer perimeter of his official conduct and therefore entitled to absolute immunity, even if allegedly unlawful. To hold otherwise, the Supreme Court determined, quote, would subject the president to trial on virtually every allegation that an action was unlawful or was taken for a forbidden purpose, and therefore deprive absolute immunity of its intended effect. 
for the same reasons. Alleging that immune acts were part of a conspiracy does not defeat immunity. Since that's what we're really getting at here with these uh, this lines of arguments here is that alleging that what Trump did as part of a conspiracy still does not defeat his immunity that he has. Quote, since absolute immunity spares the official any scrutiny of his motives, an allegation that an act was done pursuant to a conspiracy has no greater effect than an allegation that it was done in bad faith or even with malice, neither of which defeats a claim of absolute immunity. Importantly, this recognition of absolute immunity, regardless of internal motivation, does not place the president above the law, but instead simply clarifies that the remedy for a for an alleged official misconduct lies, as the Constitution requires, with Congress through impeachment and through other informal means. Because of the unique nature of the presidency, the president's exercise of his official responsibilities may have personal ramifications and vice versa. Indeed, as the Supreme Court has recognized, it is commonplace for a president's speech and conduct to have dual roles, both an official and personal character. The president is the only person who alone composes a branch of government. As a result, there is not always a clear line between his personal and official affairs. Thus, for any president in the line between official and personal can be both elusive and difficult to discern. Because the presidency is tied so tightly to the persona of its occupant, official matters often have personal implications for a president. <clears throat> the government recently agreed with this point before the D.C. Circuit. Quote, a first-term president is, in a sense, always a candidate for office. And it is not the least bit unusual for a first-term president to comment on public policy or foreign affairs at campaign events or, in this day, to announce policy changes by tweet during an election year. For example, the, the announcement of a presidential policy decision at a political rally or remarks on foreign policy delivered at a campaign event cannot categorically be excluded from the scope of the president's office merely because of the context in which they are made. And other statements at such events may be understood by members of the public and the domestic and foreign leaders as reflecting the official views of the president, not just the remarks of a political candidate. There we go. For this very reason, it is not appropriate to frame the immunity question in terms of whether the challenged conduct of the president was undertaken with a purpose to secure or perpetuate incumbency. incumbency. The Supreme Court in Nixon versus Fitzgerald emphatically rejected an argument that otherwise official acts lose immunity if they are motivated by an impermissible purpose. That logic applies with even greater force to the suggestion that the president should be subject to the suit for his official acts whenever those acts are or are plausibly alleged to have been motivated by electoral or political considerations. Thus, even if the president's speech or conduct appears to have a dual character, both official and personal, including campaign-related at the same time, that conduct still lies within the outer perimeter of his official responsibilities and is immune from prosecution. 
JB Wick. Yeah. Um, yeah, you're on to it. It would have to be after he's impe- he would have to be impeached though. In order for Biden to be indicted for things he did as president, he would have to be impeached first successfully by the House and Senate for things he did while president. And then after that, he could be held criminally liable. But as, but as far as things he did while not president, such as handling a classified documents, I think he can still be criminally prosecuted for that, but not while serving as president. That's DOJ policy, is that they won't indict a sitting president uh, because it's, it would be the executive branch taking on the executive branch. Um, so I think he could be indicted afterward though. Um, I don't know this is new territory, but it, it is really interesting. And it's, it's fascinating that, tr- that, um, their failure to impeach Trump is making their prosecution of Trump impossible. If they failed back then, they're going to fail again here. This is, yeah, another reason why I'm not worried about any of these indictments against Trump. I'm also not worried about them because I believe that Trump wants them. That what's happening in these cases is what Trump wants to happen. And there's a design to it. A patriot design. Okay. Every act alleged in the indictment falls within the outer perimeter of the president's Um, official duties and is immune from criminal prosecution. Applying this objective test, every action of the defendant alleged in the indictment falls within the outer perimeter of President Trump's official duties. As an initial matter, every action of the defendant charged in the indictment occurred while he was still in office as President of the United States. And according to the prosecution, all concerned a federal government function. Given the all-consuming nature of the presidency, these facts alone strongly support the notion that the indictment is based solely on President Trump's official acts. Making public statements, including tweets about matters of national concern, is an official action that lies at the heart of presidential duties. That's This is the next section. First, making public statements on matters of public concern, especially where they relate to a core federal function, such as the administration of the federal election, unquestionably falls within the scope of the president's official duties. Quote, the president of the United States possesses an extraordinary power to speak to his fellow citizens and on their behalf. That's Trump versus Hawaii from the year 2018. Yeah, have you noticed how many cases that Trump was involved with are getting cited in these filings? Almost like there was a design and an intention behind bringing all those cases uh, years prior to this moment. Quote, speech is unquestionably a critical function of the presidency. Thompson versus Trump from 2022. As one scholar of the presidency has explained, presidents have a duty constantly to defend themselves publicly, 
to promote policy initiatives nationwide, and to inspirit the population. And for many, this presidential function is not one duty among many, but rather the heart of the presidency. It is an essential task. In Barr, the Supreme Court held that communicating with the public about matters of public interest is standard government practice and well within the scope of official duties. Quote, the issuance of press releases was standard agency practice, as it has become with many governmental agencies in these times. We think that under the circumstances, a publicly expressed statement of the position of the agency head was an appropriate exercise of the discretion which an officer of that rank must possess if the public service is to function effectively. It would be an unduly restrictive view of the scope of duties of a public policy-making executive official to hold that a public statement of agency policy in respect to matters of wide public interest and concern is not action in line of duty. Notably, immunity lies even if the, if the, even if the official's public statements are false and actuated by malice, which, of course, President Trump denies. But even though he denies it, it's still... He still has immunity. So even if it, even if Trump acted maliciously, he still has immunity. This conclusion applies even more strongly to the president. The tradition of presidents making public statements on matters of national concern arose in the first days of the presidency and encompasses some of the most historic presidential actions in American history, including George Washington's farewell address and Abraham Lincoln's Gettysburg Address. President Theodore Roosevelt described the presidency as a bully pulpit for advancing policy views on matters of public concern. When a president speaks to the public on matters of public concern, especially issues of uniquely federal concern, like federal elections... Those statements fall in the heartland of his or her official duties. Still today, the government recognizes the statements from the bully pulpit as a fundamentally presidential act entitled to the immunity recognized in Fitzgerald. Quote, the traditional bully pulpit of the presidency is not limited to speech concerning matters for which the president bears constitutional or statutory responsibility but includes, quote, matters over which the executive branch or the federal government as a whole has no control or no direct control. Such speech is an important traditional function of the presidency, and it would offend the Constitution's set the constitutional separation of powers principles recognized in Nixon versus Fitzgerald for the courts to superintend the president's speeches or his speech to his constituents and to other office holders. The government has taken the same position in other matters as well. The government's application for stay of injunction in Murphy versus Missouri filed September 14th. That's the Missouri thing with the, the Solicitor General there. They argued that, quote, a central dimension of presidential power is the use of the office's bully pulpit to seek to persuade Americans to act in ways that the president believes would advance the public interest. And one of the central duties and prerogatives of the president is to speak to the public on matters of public concern, and he must have the latitude to do so forcefully at times. Moreover, the Supreme Court emphasizes that, quote, a government entity has the right to speak for itself. It is entitled to say what it wishes and to select the views that it wants to express. The First Amendment does not say that Congress and the other government entities must abridge their own ability to speak freely. This doctrine applies all the more to the presidency. 
for the same reason, posting tweets on matters of public concern that relate to the administration of a federal election falls within the heartland of the president's official duties. A tweet is a public statement in a different and more accessible forum. The fact that President Trump most often communicated with the public through Twitter, rather than press releases or public speeches, is merely a difference of medium, not of function. Footnote. In fact, the Second Circuit recently held that President Trump's Twitter account during his presidency was a government-run public forum for speech, and that, quote, the factors pointing to the public, non-private nature of the account and its interactive features are overwhelming. The Second Circuit stated that President Trump, quote, has stipulated that he uses the account frequently to announce, describe, and defend his policies, to promote his administration's legislative agenda, to announce official decisions, to engage with foreign political leaders, to publicize state visits, and to challenge media organizations whose coverage of his administration he believes to be unfair. In June 2017, when the White House Press Secretary Sean Spicer stated at a press conference that President Trump's tweets should be considered official statements by the President of the United States, or in June, uh, I said when, um, I should have said then, the Second Circuit concluded that the evidence of the official nature of the account is overwhelming. Although addressing different uh, different set of allegations, this court recently concluded that some of President Trump's tweets and public statements relating to the January 6th certification process did not fall within the outer perimeter of his official duties. However, Thompson addressed a different set of allegations and is therefore distinguishable from this case. Regardless, Thompson's analysis is non-binding and unpersuasive. Footnote. Other recent district court decisions coming to similar conclusions in the context of President Trump's claims of civil immunity are largely consistent with Thompson. Uh, see Moore v. Trump, Michigan Welfare versus Trump, United States versus Crestman. Okay. First, Thompson acknowledged that President Trump's Quote, pre-January 6th tweets and the January 6th rally speech addressed matters of public concern, the outcome of the 2020 presidential election, and election integrity. Whatever one thinks of the president's views on those subjects, they plainly were matters of public concern. The analysis should have ended there. As speaking to the public on matters of public concern, especially uniquely federal concerns, like a federal election, is not only a straightforward and long-established presidential function, but itself a critical function of the presidency. Yet the court, puzzlingly, went on to analyze whether those tweets were spoken in furtherance of another entirely separate presidential function. Thompson's artificially cramped formulation of the president's authority to speak contradicts the much broader historic tradition of presidential communications on all matters that affect the nation. Adopting Thompson's analysis, for example, would place President Biden's recent criticism of the Supreme Court's opinion in Dobbs on his regular criticism of Congress and certain state governments outside the perimeter of official duties. This cannot be the case. Second, Thompson misapplied its own furtherance of the presidential function test. Thompson acknowledged that the investigation and enforcement of fraud in federal elections is a core executive function. 
conceding that, quote, enforcing election laws through litigation strikes at the core of the executive branch's duty to faithfully execute the law. <clears throat> Thompson held that, quote, the president can enforce election laws through litigation initiated by the Department of Justice or the Federal Election Commission, agencies over which he has appointment authority. A lawsuit is the ultimate remedy for a breach of law, and it is to the president and not to the Congress that the Constitution entrusts responsibility to take care that the laws be faithfully executed. Here, President Trump's alleged tweets and public statements about fraud in the election and the role of the vice president in the certification process were directly related to his contentions that, one, the presidential election's outcome was tainted by fraud and other procedural irregularities, and two, the U.S. Department of Justice and certain state governments had failed to adequately investigate and prosecute fraud and irregularities in the election. By Thompson's own logic, therefore, President Trump's tweets and public statements were in furtherance of a presidential function under the Take Care Clause, namely, assuring adequate investigation and enforcement of federal election laws and protecting the integrity of federal elections. In reaching its conclusion, Thompson repeatedly and erroneously focused on what it deemed the purpose of President Trump's public statements. Thompson stated, for instance, that President Trump's tweets were, quote, directed at securing incumbency, that this was the purpose of the January 6th rally, and that the clear purpose of his public statements was to help him win, and that the January 6th speech reflects an electoral purpose. But, as explained above, separate from the fact that the allegations regarding intent are untrue, an allegedly improper purpose for an official act does not rob the act of its official character. Indeed, there is hardly an immunity case without such an allegation. Quote, the claim of an unworthy purpose does not destroy privilege. That's from Tinney, another court case. Quote, the motive that impelled him to do that of which the plaintiff complains is therefore wholly immaterial. That is from Spalding. All right, next part. Communicating with the U.S. Department of Justice about the investigation of election fraud, etc. The president's alleged meetings and communications with officials at the U.S. Department of Justice also lie at the heart of his constitutional duties. Article 2 provides that the president shall take care that the laws be faithfully executed. U.S. Constitution Article 2, Section 3, or Paragraph, paragraph 3. The laws of the United States include prohibitions against election fraud and other election crimes, which the Attorney General of the United States, who is appointed by and reports to the President, is charged with enforcing. The Department of Justice publishes a lengthy manual on the prosecution of federal election crimes, and it links to that, which provides that, quote, federal jurisdiction over election fraud is easily established in elections when a federal candidate is on the ballot. The Department of Justice has an entire election crimes branch within the public integrity section that was created in 1980, quote, to oversee the Justice Department's nationwide response to election crimes. The election crimes branch also consults and supports state and local prosecutors and investigators around the nation. In short, it is indisputable that, quote, 
The president can enforce election laws through litigation initiated by the DOJ or the FEC, agencies over which he has appointment authority, urging his own Department of Justice to do more to enforce the laws that it is charged with enforcing is unquestionably an official act of the president. Quote, the president may undoubtedly, in the performance of his constitutional duty, instruct the attorney general to give his direct personal attention to legal concerns of the United States elsewhere, when the interests of the government seem to the president to require this. Quote, the attorney general is the hand of the president in taking care that the laws of the United States in protection of the interest of the United States in legal proceedings and the prosecution of offenses be faithfully executed. Deliberating about whether to replace the acting attorney general of the United States is also a core presidential function. The appointments clause of Article 2 provides that the president, quote, shall nominate and by and with the advice and consent of the Senate shall appoint ambassadors, other public ministers and consuls, judges of the Supreme Court and all other officers of the United States. U.S. Constitution Article 2, Paragraph 2, Clause 2. This clause also encompasses the removal powers. Quote, during the first Congress, James Madison stated that if any power whatsoever is in its nature executive, it is the power of appointing, overseeing, and controlling those who execute the laws. Although mirroring Fitzgerald, the prosecution incorrectly alleges that an improper purpose motivated President Trump's thinking regarding the Department of Justice staffing and its approach to election fraud and irregularities. A president's purpose or motive is once again irrelevant to whether his acts fall within the outer perimeter of his responsibilities. Next part. Three, meeting with state officials about the administration of an election, a federal election lies at the heart of his duties. Meeting with state officials about the administration of a federal election in their states and urging them to exercise their official duties with respect to the federal election in a certain way constitutes another core exercise of presidential responsibility. The Supreme Court long ago rejected the notion that the president's take care duty is, quote, limited to the enforcement of acts of Congress or of treaties of the United States, according to their expressed terms, and held that his, this duty includes the rights, duties, and obligations growing out of the Constitution itself, our international relations, and the protection implied by the nature of the government under the Constitution. Ensuring the integrity of federal elections and urging state officials to take steps to ensure the fairness and integrity of federal elections fall within the rights, duties, and obligations growing out of the Constitution itself, and all the protection implied by the nature of the government under the Constitution. Likewise, Fitzgerald, likewise, rejected the notion that the outer perimeter of the president's official responsibilities should be identified by parsing specific functions of the presidency, holding that, quote, in many cases, it would be difficult to determine which of the president's innumerable functions encompassed a particular action, and that the functional approach could be highly intrusive. Ensuring the integrity of federal elections falls within the president's official duty. Quote, while presidential electors are not officers or agents of the federal government, they exercise federal functions under and discharge duties in virtue of authority conferred by the Constitution of the United States. 
That's according to Burroughs versus United States in 1934. Also, Anderson versus uh, Celebrezze, Celebrezze in 1983, discussing the uniquely important national interest in presidential elections. Recognizing the strong federal interest in elections, the current administration has issued a sweeping executive order directing all federal agencies to interface with state and local officials to promote election integrity and ballot access. See Executive Order 14019. Similarly, Taking steps to ensure that fraud and other irregularities do not vitiate the outcome of federal election also falls within the president's responsibility. For example, federal election law criminalizes preparing, quote, false ballots, placing them in the box, and returning them, because that prevents, quote, an honest count of the votes lawfully cast. United States versus Sailor, 1944. The Constitution also guarantees equal treatment of voters in federal elections and protects them from arbitrary interference with their voting rights. Bush v. Gore, 2000. Communicating with state officials to ensure, quote, an honest count of the votes lawfully cast in a federal election thus effectuates federal rights and flows directly from the president's take care power. Further, the indictment alleges that President that the president communicated with state officials arguing that election fraud occurred and urged them to conduct their own investigations of election fraud and irregularities and to take steps to address those issues. Those are just the sort of communications that the one would expect the Department of Justice to make if it had investigated and concluded that there was election fraud in the relevant states. As noted above, the Election Crimes Branch of DOJ, of DOJ consults and supports prosecutors and investigators around the nation. U.S. Department of Justice Election Crimes Branch Supra. DOJ's authority is not greater than the president's here. Article 2 makes a single president responsible for the actions of the executive branch. The president thus has the authority and obligation to communicate his concerns about election about alleged fraud in federal elections to the relevant state authorities, a function at the heart of the president's constitutional role. Again, the Department of Justice has recently come to the same conclusion, concluding that communicating with state officials about their exercise of official duties with respect to the federal election falls within the scope of the president's official duties. Quote, such speech is an important traditional function of the presidency, and it would offend the constitutional separation of powers principle recognized in Nixon versus Fitzgerald for courts to superintend the president's speech to his constituents and to other office holders, merely because it concerns the conduct of a, of a coordinate branch or an entity outside the federal government. Aware that, as a general matter, a president may communicate with federal election officials regarding election integrity concerns, the prosecution here attempts to sidestep the issue by falsely alleging President Trump did not really believe there were outcome-determinative issues with the election. However, probing President Trump's internal beliefs, again, are questions of motive or purpose that cannot defeat immunity. Elsewise, the president would be subject to trial on virtually every allegation that an action was unlawful or was taken for a forbidden purpose. Last, although Thompson came to a different conclusion about the scope of the take care responsibility, its analysis is unpersuasive. 
Thompson reasoned that, quote, a sitting president has no expressly identified duty to faithfully execute the laws surrounding the certification of the Electoral College. <clears throat> this is wrong for several reasons. First, by requiring the president to show an expressly identified duty, Thompson adopted the very standard that the Supreme Court rejected in Neagle as, quote, limited to the enforcement of acts of Congress or of a treaties or of treaties of the United States according to their express terms. On the contrary, the president's take care role includes the rights, duties, and obligations growing out of the Constitution itself and all the protection implied by the nature of the government under the Constitution. This includes taking steps to prevent the certification of a federal election tainted by fraud. Even if those steps are limited to encouraging other state and federal officials to exercise their responsibilities a certain way where the president allegedly has no direct role. Thompson likewise contravened the Supreme Court's guidance in Fitzgerald that the scope of presidential immunity should not be determined by parsing the specific functions of the president and demanding that immunity be closely linked to a specific function. Second, even if the take-care duty were limited in the express terms of federal statutes, Thompson overlooked the direct connection between the president's duty to enforce federal statutes that safeguard the integrity of federal elections, and this communication, his communications with state officials about that very issue. If the president or DOJ concludes that significant fraud occurred in the administration of an election or a federal election, the take care clause does not require them to keep that information to themselves. Rather, it authorizes them to report that conclusion to state and other federal officials and to urge them to act accordingly. Thompson concluded that, quote, merely exhorting non-executive branch officials to act in a certain way is not a responsibility within the scope of the take care clause. That is wrong. But even if that were so, when exhorting non-executive branch officials to act in a certain way, addresses core federal interest and effectuates and protects rights conferred by federal statutes, it falls within the president's responsibilities. Third, Thompson's conclusion that the president's take care clause duty does not extend to government officials over whom he has no power proves far too much. That formulation entails that the president's urging the Supreme Court to rule a certain way in a case to which the United States is not a party, for example, in an amicus brief filed by the Solicitor General, is a purely private action outside the outer perimeter of the executive responsibility simply because the president has no power or control over Article Three judges. That is illogical. Rather, the take care clause must extend to exhorting other officials to exercise their responsibilities in a manner consistent with the president's view of the public good, especially when the issue affects the civil rights of millions of federal voters and addresses a bedrock function of the United States federal government. Next part, four. Communicating with the President of the Senate and other members of Congress about the exercise of their official duties regarding the federal election. President Trump's communications with the Vice President in his legislative role as President of the Senate and with other members of Congress about the exercise of their official duties with respect to the election certification also fall at the heart of the President's official responsibility. 
Presidents routinely communicate with Congress to provide information and urge them to act, and this conduct is among the most deeply rooted traditions of the presidential authority. First, President Trump's direct communication with the vice president and his legislative role as president of the Senate were central to his official responsibilities. The Constitution assigns the president extensive roles in the legislative process. Article 1, Paragraph 7, Clause 2, confers on the president the veto power over bills. Clause 3 of the same section confers on the president the veto power over joint resolutions. Article 2 provides that the president shall from time to time give to the Congress information of the State of the Union and recommend to their consideration such measures as he shall judge necessary and expedient. Article 2, Section 3 also provides that the president may, on extraordinary occasions, convene both houses or either of them, and in the case of disagreement between them with respect to the time of adjournment, he may adjourn them to such time as he shall think proper. Particularly relevant here, the president's authority to recommend to Congress consideration such measures, as he shall adjudge necessary and expedient, encompasses the president's authority to provide information to legislators and urge them to take specific action. Quote, It is equally necessary for the executive branch of the government to be able to make its views known to Congress on all matters in which it has responsibilities, duties, and opinions. The executive agencies have a, def a definite requirement to express views to Congress, to make suggestions, to request needed legislation, to draft proposed bills or amendments, and so on. Executive agencies have the right and the responsibility to seek to influence, encourage, promote, or retard legislation in many clear and proper and often extremely effective respects. In quote, the, wait, 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 where am I reading from? Where's this quote from? It's from the House of Representatives. Quote, in furtherance of basic responsibilities, the executive branch and particularly the chief executive and his official family of departmental and agency heads are authorized to inform and consult with the Congress on legislative considerations, draft bills and urgent messages, speeches, reports, committee testimony, and by direct contact, the passage or defeat of various measures. The executive branch endorsed these statements in 1961. Quote, the participation of the president in the legislative function is based on the Constitution. It was the intention of the fathers of the republic that the president should be an, be an active power in legislation. He is made by the Constitution an important part of the legislative mechanism of our government. The president's right, even duty, to propose detailed legislation to Congress touching every problem of American society and then to speed its passage, passage down the legislative transmission belt is now an accepted, accepted usage of our constitutional system. This constitutionally established role in the legislative process has become so vital through the years that the president has been aptly termed the chief legislator. Here, the indictment alleges that President Trump urged both the vice president in his legislative capacity as president of the Senate and members of Congress to exercise their authority in the election certification proceedings consistent with what President Trump urged was the public good. This conduct is manifestly part of the president's responsibilities in our constitutional tradition.
and the question whether president has a formal role in the election certification process makes no difference. As the Department of Justice recently put it, quote, a president acts within the scope of his office when he urges members of Congress to act in a particular way with respect to a given legislative matter, even a matter such as congressional investigation in which the president has no constitutional role. In fact, there is no direct historic president, um, historical precedent for a sitting president communicating with members of Congress about alleged election fraud relating to the certification of a disputed election involving rival slates of electors. In the wake of the 1876 election, President Grant discussed the electoral count and claims of fraud with a member of the House. Likewise, President Grant transmitted to Congress a letter he received from an observer, a U.S. senator, whom he had requested to go to New Orleans and witness the counting of votes. President Grant also dispatched federal troops to Louisiana and Florida to prevent violence while Republican-controlled election boards counted votes, and he instructed the federal troops to report fraud in the election. These acts, just like President Trump's, were presidential. Part 5. Allegedly, uh, allegedly organizing contingent slates of electors falls within the president's official duties. The indictment alleges that President Trump directed or approved other individuals to organize contingent slates of electors in disputed states. The indictment clearly alleges that these actions were part and parcel of President Trump's alleged attempts to convince the vice president and members of Congress to exercise their official authority in his favor on January 6th, alleging that the contingent electors were to, quote, transmit their false certificates to the vice president and other government officials to be counted at the certification proceeding on January 6th, alleging that the submission of these fraudulent electors, fraudulent slates of electors, would create a fake controversy at the certification proceeding and position the vice president presiding on January 6th as the president of the Senate, to supplant legitimate electors with the defendant's fake electors and certify the defendant as president. The contingent electors' role, the indictment alleges, was to allow President Trump to convince the vice president and other members of Congress to reject or delay the certification of certain electoral votes. Alleging that President Trump attempted to convince the vice president to accept the defendant's supposedly fraudulent electors, reject legitimate electoral votes, or send legitimate electoral votes to state legislatures for review rather than count them, and repeatedly alleging that the slates of electors were used to attempt to convince the vice president to reject or delay the certification. These actions fall within the president's official responsibilities for at least two reasons. First, as noted above, the outer perimeter of the president's official responsibilities includes the rights, duties, and obligations growing out of the Constitution itself and all the protection implied by the nature of the government under the Constitution. The Constitution explicitly provides for presidential electors and delineates their role. U.S. Constitution Article 2, Paragraph 1, Clause 2, quote, While presidential electors are not officers or agents of the federal government, they exercise federal functions under and discharge duties in virtue of authority conferred by the Constitution of the United States. Indeed, the indictment itself describes the selection of presidential electors as an integral part of, quote, a bedrock function of the United States federal government, 
the nation's process of collecting, counting, and certifying the results of the presidential election. Organizing slates of electors, therefore, relates directly to the rights, duties, and obligations growing out of the Constitution itself, and thus to the president's responsibilities. Without contingent slates of electors, there would be no alternative option for the vice president to certify, rendering futile the president's entirely legitimate efforts to urge Congress and the states to reconsider evidence of fraud and irregularities. Organization of the slates of electors, in other words, advances two core presidential functions, protecting the integrity of federal elections and urging members of Congress to act in a manner consistent with the president's view of the public good. Thus, these actions clearly lie within the outer perimeter of the president's official responsibilities. Footnote. Nor were such actions unprecedented. Quite the opposite. At the time of the alleged conduct, the Electoral Count Act did not prohibit organizing contingent slates of electors, and such electors had been organized previously in the disputed elections of 1876 and 1960, including in the former case with the support of the sitting president. This was thus not a situation where the, quote, president of the United the president takes measures incompatible with the express or implied will of Congress, but a situation where the president was acting in an area of independent presidential responsibility. Second, as the indictment itself emphasizes, the actions of organizing slates of electors were ancillary and and preparatory to the acts of communicating with the vice president and other members of Congress and urging them to exercise their official responsibilities a certain way, which are themselves core exercises of presidential responsibility. Acts that are intertwined with immune actions are themselves immune from liability. For example, it is widely accepted that, quote, absolute prosecutorial immunity will attach to an administration, administrative or investigative acts necessary for a prosecutor to initiate or maintain the criminal prosecution. Prince versus Hicks. Absolute immunity, absolute immunity may attach even to administrative or investigative activities with these functions are necessary so that a prosecutor may fulfill his function as an officer of the court. Snell versus Tunnel, the Supreme Court has recognized that some duties prior to the initiation of prosecution are also protected. Okay. For these, the, wait, so too here, President Trump's alleged acts regarding the contingent slates of electors performed within the continuum of his other immune acts, such as communicating with Congress, are also immune. For these reasons, the acts alleged in the indictment lie firmly within the outer perimeter of the president's official responsibility. Therefore, they cannot form the basis of criminal charges against President Trump. Footnote. The indictment also alleges that President Trump filed lawsuits challenging the election outcome. Yet, the indictment proclaims that it is not directly relying on such actions. Admitting that President Trump, quote, was also entitled to formally challenge the results of the election through lawful and appropriate means, such as by seeking recounts or audits of the popular vote in the states, or filing lawsuits challenging ballots and procedures. Accordingly, these are included only as acts in furtherance of the supposed conspiracy, which are immune from prosecution for reasons just stated, regardless of whether such lawsuits were filed in a personal or official capacity. 
Moreover, the act of filing lawsuits alone, without more, is manifestly insufficient to support any charge in the indictment. Conclusion The court should dismiss the indictment with prejudice on the grounds of presidential immunity. Well done by Todd Blanche, John F. Laro, Gregory M. Singer, Filza I. Pavillon, and the law offices of Laro and Singer, counsel for President Trump. That was a that was a good filing. I hope y'all enjoyed that. I enjoyed reading it. I think they made a solid argument um, for dismissing the indictment based on presidential immunity. But of course, they didn't stop there. They also filed a dismissal based on constitutional grounds. And uh, let's see, this is constitutional grounds. This is in support. Wait a minute. I may have got that mixed up. There's this one on constitutional grounds. Where's this other one? Statutory grounds and selective and vindictive prosecution. So there's three more filings um, that they've made to get this dismissed. And we will have to save those for another time because that's it. That is the extent of what my voice can do today. And that is the extent of the uh of my my dog's patience for being in their crates while I'm while I'm doing a show. I don't know if you guys can hear them but they're kind of going nuts upstairs. Just a little bit. All right folks, thank you very much. It's good to be back. I will do another show either on Tuesday or Wednesday. I'll post and uh you know if you have notifications turned on then you'll You'll get notified, hopefully, depending on your settings on Rumble. And uh, we'll do this again. And we'll keep, we'll go back to Judge Chuk in this DC case and try and catch up fully on the filings in it. Uh, we'll just keep, keep trucking along. And for all you nerds, um, I find it really interesting. And I think some of you do. I'm pretty sure. You tell me you do. So. You guys have a blessed day. Stay positive, please. Resist the temptation to be outraged and stay positive. Um, and remember, we're not going to win every battle, but we're going to win this war. I promise we really will. Y'all have a good one. And uh, I'll see you later. See you on Wednesday, I think. <laughs>